Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So we're here Thursday night, March 25th. Another night, another podcast. What are we talking about this week? Yeah, it's good to be back. I hate to keep making the same excuses about our schedules being busy, but we both regret not being able to be more consistent with getting these out. But anyway, yeah, good to be back. Good to see you. How's how's your bracket doing? Uh, well, I'm, I made quite a few, but surprisingly, I got one that's that's uh, that's still in the hunt. Okay. All, all four Final Four teams alive, and. Um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, after my Badgers went out, I, I, you know, I no longer have a rooting interest, but um, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I have a vested interest. We'll call it. There that. you go. Good for you. My, mine's a mess, but like you said, your Badgers lost day two. My Longhorns lost day one. So in that sense, it was, it was not a good weekend for our, for our guys. Uh, but all right, let's get into. There's a lot, lot to talk about this week. Uh, President Biden, 64 days after taking office. Uh, just gave his first press conference this afternoon. The goal of that press conference when it was announced nine days ago was to you know, loudly proclaim the triumph of the COVID relief bill, which we had talked about last week as being you know, wildly popular. And even though it was passed along party lines, it got widespread praise, people were happy. I got a $1,400 check in my bank account. So that was a win for me. Uh, and the White House announced finally, press is going to get the chance to ask Biden questions in an extended setting. He's going to get a chance to, you know, do the help is here message. Unfortunately, as with any presidential administration, you know, real life interferes. And over the last nine days, uh, President Biden in his administration in our country has been faced with two crises that existed before President Biden and you know, reared their ugly heads this week. So there is a rising crisis on our southern border with Mexico, um, where there are tens of thousands of, of minors and um, hundreds of thousands of, of people who are amassing at our border. And so you and I will discuss that a little bit. Uh, and then you know, most tragically, there were two massacres um, in Atlanta, Georgia, and Boulder, Colorado over the, the past week. And when we'll talk about what happened in those situations, reaction to it, gun control, and try to find some, some hope if we can. So uh, in some ways, it's going to be tough conversations to have, but you know these, these things exist, they happen, and we have to have those conversations. Before we get into those conversations, we want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen at Cannon Hill Woodworking, building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. The guys at Cannon Hill want to remind you, banging your fists in anger during a political argument will be much more satisfying on a Cannon Hill table. 
We get the job done. It's a hard line when you're an import, baby boy. It's hard times when you ain't sent for braces. Feed the belly of the beast with they pitchforks. Rich chores done by the people that get ignored. Uh, yeah. So with the passage of the latest coronavirus relief bill, President Biden had intended to take a bit of a victory lap around the United States over the past couple of weeks. Uh, unfortunately, reality has largely intruded upon that. Um, both in the form of the mass shootings, which we'll get to later, but also uh, with the situation at our southern border with Mexico. And this is a situation which has really intensified in the past couple of weeks and has grown steadily over the past couple of months. And perhaps unsurprisingly to someone like me, has not gotten nearly the same type of media attention, media scrutiny that this issue had gotten under former President Trump. Part of the reason it hasn't gotten so much media scrutiny is because President Biden has not allowed media to go to the southern border and look at the detention facilities. And so that's what's happened in the last couple of weeks where uh, the president has gotten a lot of blowback from the media seeking access. And uh, his, the White House press secretary, John Psaki, has had to respond to a bunch of media queries of like, why can't we go to the southern border? And she's pleaded for more time. And um, the Secretary of uh, Secretary Mayorkas has also said, we just need more time to, to get things together. Uh, but ultimately the media has not been allowed to get to the southern border. But so there's been very few photographs that have come out. Uh, but I wanna give you some statistics that we do have and paint a little bit of a picture of the context around what's happening at the border now um, and then get your thoughts and reactions to it. So when President Biden was running for president and then after he was elected, before he took office, a lot of his rhetoric stemmed around uh, President Trump not being humane, not being American uh, in terms of like embodying like the American values of you know, mercy and justice and those sorts of things. And a lot of those criticisms were absolutely fair. Uh, and President Biden promised to be uh, more humane, more welcoming, uh, to reestablish uh, America, the United States uh, at the forefront of like moral leadership in the world. And that was his goal. Uh, we've talked at length about President Biden governing through executive actions. And um, on the first day alone, he issued five immigration executive orders uh, he promised an immigration policy far more humane and welcoming, and his administration also began allowing unaccompanied minors into the country, which was like a huge departure from the Trump administration approach. So at the moment, the Biden administration is struggling, scrambling to control the biggest migrant surge at our southern border in 20 years. We're currently on pace for as many as 2 million immigrants at the southern border in, in 2021. Right now, just this moment, there are now more than 10,000 unaccompanied migrant children in the, in the care of the Department of Health and Human Services and 5,000 more in the care of Customs Border Protection, which is nearly twice the previous record. Uh, Defense uh, Department of Health uh, and Human Services, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, like I said earlier, has, has been like pleading for, for more time. Uh, but, you know, he's acknowledged that this, this pace is, is largely unprecedented in, in this century. Uh, the latest statistics show that there have been nearly 100,000 arrests so far in March. Uh, 
which is the highest one month total since 2006. Um, just March 10th, two weeks ago, um, there were over 6,000 arrests on, on that day alone. Uh, Chris Murphy, who's a, a senator from Connecticut, went down. And again, we haven't had a ton of reporting around the border because the media, the press hasn't been allowed into these facilities uh, by the Biden administration. But uh, just this past Friday, uh, like I said, Chris Murphy, from senator from Connecticut, went down and tweeted after he said, uh, when I saw hundreds of kids packed into big open rooms, in a corner, I fought back tears as a 13-year-old girl sobbed uncontrollably, explaining it through a translator how terrified she was, having been separated from her grandmother and without her parents. Uh, and Vicente uh, Gonzalez, who's a Democratic representative from Texas, said, quote, when you create a system that incentivizes people to come across and they are released, that immediately sends a message to Central America that if you come across, you can stay. It incentivizes droves of people to come, and the only way to slow it down is by changing the policy at our doorstep. If they don't change the policy, the flow of continued migration traffic isn't going to stop or slow down. Uh, there's no question Donald Trump's strategy was inhumane, brutal, and un-American, but what we're doing now is also a failure. So in a little bit, I want to get to kind of larger picture immigration stuff, but do you have any thoughts on those statistics, the current situation uh, that we're facing at our border at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I guess a couple of things. I think you're definitely right to point out that it hasn't gotten the kind of um, media coverage that you would expect such a large kind of humanitarian disaster to get a large scale humanitarian disaster to get. I think in part it it is just part of the, uh, you know, the sort of the lack of transparency aside, it is part of sort of the la larger kind of media cycle where yes, things may be getting like incrementally worse um, than they had been over the past like three months today. But in general, like the situation has been kind of disastrous for like a long time. I, I, I mean, I think, you know, we're potentially seeing some of the ramifications of governing, governing by executive action that like executive actions rarely get the uh, kind of the the back and forth and the scrutiny and, and sort of understanding implications from people for and against um, that a normal piece of legislation would, but it's kind of what you're left with when you cannot come, come up with some type of proper immigration compromise. I think that's um, one aspect of it. I think another is that like, uh, you know, the, the person that you were referencing was sort of saying, you know, what was un happening under Trump was inhumane, but what's happening now is also not clearly not the right thing to do and, and potentially also a different type of inhumanity, but it's, you know, just in, in sort of a different flavor of it. Um, I think that's very right to point out. I, I would also say, uh, you know, it, it would be difficult to lay this situation at Biden's feet because it's something that's just been festering for a while. You, you know, you talk about the way that Trump would essentially not allow um, immigrants to follow sort of the natural protocols, like being able to come to the United States to claim asylum, like a lot of these other things that had been sort of normal practices, like the whatever the boogeyman that catch and release was, that's not, you know, they, there was never really significant evidence to say that um, migrants who had crossed the border legally were applying for asylum or applying for other legal status. Um, once they were released in the United States, were not showing up to these cases. I think the vast majority of them were, um, but there was <clears throat> a lot less legal immigration, especially from 
um, from Central America that was allowed. I think we'll talk about some of the broader things, you know, some of the ideas that I like that I'm hearing from Biden, but um, I don't know. I'll, I'll give you, let, let you uh, jump in here. Yeah, it's not that I want to, it's not that I'm happy that the situation on the southern border has gotten worse. I am frustrated the the discrepancy in, in media coverage that it has received. Uh, and I have readily admitted in the past, will continue to readily admit that Trump's rhetoric around uh, people at the southern border, Mexicans in particular, Hispanic people in general, was often absolutely racist on its face. And a lot of his immigration policies, I have said many times, were absolutely inhumane. Uh, with that said, we got our first pictures this past week. Uh, another representative from Texas, Democratic representative Henry Queller, I'm probably not saying his name exactly right, um, released the first photos. And easy for you to Google, you know, Trump got a ton of flack including from me and from you about like his you know, children in cages. If you look at the photos, they don't look very different than it was a few months ago. It's hundreds of children crammed into these rooms. They're way overcrowded. They have tinfoil blankets and yeah, they're not metal cages, but there's now like plastic wrappings around them. And like, while and you kind of get like, I'm sure Biden was like, I absolutely cannot have pictures of kids in the same cages that Trump and Obama had them in. The situation is no different. And I just I, I would love people to keep that same energy. If you are infuriated, rightly so, with how President Trump was dealing with like kids and families at the border, it's not that different now. And again, it's, you're right. It's, I'm not laying it at President Joe Biden's feet. It's not his fault that this happened, but it's it's indicative of a larger issue. And if, like I said, keep the same energy with, with Trump and Biden. I will say that Biden through his messaging, through his potential more you know, humanitarian side, his maybe perceived leniency, it does feel like that's making a difference. Um, there was a Washington Post article I was reading that said, smugglers as well as the relatives of the migrants already in the United States often argue that Biden is more lean and his more lenient policies mean making the journey now is worth the risk. Uh, Queller, the Texas representative that I mentioned earlier, started asking the, the kids, the unaccompanied minors questions. And he said, what are you hearing from friends, families, neighbors? Are, are, you, are they telling you that it's time to come? And they all raised their hands and said, yes, we see this on TV. We hear it from our family. We see images of people being let in. And so we're gonna come across to do the same thing. This is our opportunity to do this, uh, which is frustrating because in general, I don't think that's a very smart policy. I don't think it's a safe policy in general. Uh, and certainly in times when we're battling like a worldwide pandemic, allowing thousands of people just to come into our country, I would imagine the vast majority of whom are not vaccinated, we're already struggling enough. Uh, it, it, this crisis just seems to be getting worse in a lot of ways. And I call it a crisis specifically because the Biden team refuses to call it a crisis. So they, like that's been their messaging. And um, Jen Psaki slipped up the other day and called it a uh, crisis. And when reporters checked her on it, she said, oh, I, I misspoke. It's just a challenge because Biden wants to focus on the crisis of the pandemic and climate change crisis and the economic crisis. And he refuses to call it a crisis at the border, which, again, is frustrating uh, for someone like me. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely speaks to at, at some point there is just like a limited capacity of, you know, what what is the challenge that you're going to deal with and when 
Um, I think we'll get into this a little bit with with gun control in terms of like how much of his political capital is he willing to put on that. He's also got an infrastructure agenda he wants to look at. He's got climate yeah, change. For sure. So immigration is is another one of those things. It's certainly um yeah, I mean, certainly as a progressive person, it's something that we've been thinking about for a long time. I mean, I think I think I guess in general. Um, the criticism that that will be laid at his feet. And, and honestly, when I think about it, some of it reminds me of like with the Affordable, Affordable Care Act that, you know, we're going to repeal and replace and then we repeal it sort of, you know, we remove the tax mandate, but we don't have actually a solution. We don't have anything to do with it. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, okay, we just opened a different can of worms and it's a huge problem. But we didn't really have the solution on the other end. And so I think definitely there's part of that there, but I guess, you know, in the sort of the bigger picture and what's not happening in the near term, some of the things that I was very pleased to see about the Biden administration is that one, we're going to think about immigration, not just as the people who come across the border, but as, um, a larger sort of global issue as to, you know, why do people feel the desperate need to make a hundred plus mile journey by foot, potentially um, dying in like a million different ways along the way to try and get to the United States. And fundamentally, it's been a lack of opportunity, right? Like we just don't see the same number of Mexican migrants coming across the border anymore because Mexico economically is in a significantly better situation. And a lot of Biden's immigration policy is going to be to look at those ways to bolster economies in Central America and, and other parts of Latin America, which I think for me is, is absolutely the right way to start thinking about things. And, you know, the dealing with the individuals coming across and, and, what we can do for them or not do for them, I think is, is absolutely important. We need to figure it out. But if we want a long-term solution that doesn't, um, yeah, I mean, if we want a long-term solution, it's gotta be, how can we support some of these other countries? And that is, you know, in a weird way, it's also in a, in an America first strategy that I, in the way that I think of it, um, if we are, uh, I think, yeah, if we're, to be serious about solving these problems for the long term. Yeah, a lot of great points there. I don't want to briefly touch on like your first comparison to the ACA. I think that were really spot on. And I, I saw this where a lot of Biden's allies were on board with not only his rhetoric, but his general plan surrounding immigration uh, going forward. But even they were surprised that he immediately started rolling back some of Trump's policies and sounding this welcoming note. Like he could have very easily relied on, look, we're in the middle of a global pandemic right now. Until we get that taken care of, we can't really start dealing with these other issues. But when you come out in day one and sign five executive orders, rolling back a lot of Trump's border policies and say, hey, you know, this is where put a path to citizenship on the table. If you were, if you were even possibly considering trying to get into the United States from one of these countries, now, like they, like they have admitted, now would be your time to come. So I think that's a really good comparison. But yeah, let's talk like, let's try to be a little more solution oriented. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more with you with the, the scope of, we need to address these issues at the root. Like so often and with so many things with American national politics, we have, by the time we start addressing issues, it's too late, right? We're gonna have 2 million people at our, at our border this year who 
largely like aren't aren't waiting in line, aren't necessarily following the processes that we have set up as a country to do so like lawfully and, and orderly and, and safely. Uh, but it's like you acknowledged in the mid uh, 20th century, the Hispanic immigrants and what became known as quote like illegal immigration or undocumented immigrants were largely Mexican. And that was because Mexico was, was struggling economically at the time and it was easy to come over the border. We largely had an open border for you know, hundreds of years through the mid 1900s. We had largely an open border where you know, Mexican seasonal workers would, would come across, you know, farm US crops, go back to Mexico for the winter and, and help their families. But this really started to change after World War II once like all the American troops started coming back and then there started to be an outrage, which we've heard for the last 70 years now, of like they're taking our jobs. Like these people that are not supposed to be here are taking jobs that belong to Americans. And so in response to that, we started uh, closing our border more, militarizing our border under the Reagan administration. And largely I, I think it came out of like a good place of like, we want to be more safe in a modern world that is being more dangerous and want to make sure that people are immigrating lawfully and we're not uh, being inundated with, uh, you know, smuggled kids or drugs or weapons coming across an open border. But largely what happened is because you've now militarized the border, you've trapped people on either side. And there are fewer people that are able to go back and forth and work and commute back, back to their country. Uh, and so that's one issue. But like you mentioned, Mexico in the last you know, 20, 30 years has, their economy has grown. Uh, and while it's still probably not where the Mexican government, Mexican people want it to be, there are like large swaths of Mexico that are doing fairly well, um, relatively speaking to where they were in the mid 1900s. But the Northern Triangle countries, uh, El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras are some of the most dangerous and poorest places in the world. And like you mentioned, and this is partially my fault, like so much of the, the coverage, the narrative focuses on this crisis for the United States, how it's affecting us at our border and in our communities. And those are, that crisis is real. I don't wanna to diminish to what I was saying earlier at all, but the people fleeing and why there are so many unaccompanied minors, particularly uh, young men, is because there is so little opportunity. Their countries where they're growing up are so dangerous. There's, there's no opportunities for education, no opportunities to work you know, good jobs. Uh, their families are threatened if you, if you don't join gangs, if you don't sell drugs. Uh, there's, there's, unfortunately, in a lot of these places, there's, there's no hope. And so you make this journey across Mexico, which is rife with like unfathomable danger for someone like me that has lived so comfortably, often riding on, jumping on the backs of trains, uh, walking uh, in the heat for, for tens of miles, uh, having to deal with criminals who are out to exploit you in all sorts of ways as you're, as you're going through Mexico. Oftentimes you're, you're by yourself or just with other like teenagers. Uh, it's, 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 really unimaginable for me. Uh, and it's always baffled me. And certainly there's corruption in, in these governments, particularly in the government of Honduras, I know in particular, but that the United States doesn't make more of an effort 
to get into these countries and devote money and resources. It's like all of this, we give so much money, uh, like foreign aid in general, which is great. But this is happening in our backyard and directly affecting us. And it doesn't seem to be a focus under the Trump administration, like Trump in his frustration with these countries refusing to like stem the, the bleeding, the stem the tide of people coming out of their countries, cut aid to these countries, which I get, but it's just, it's so, it's such like a, a childish, short-term, short-sighted move. And what these countries need is more investment and more cooperation between the United States government and us giving them everything they could possibly need to, to make sure that there are educational opportunities and jobs available and healthcare for these people uh, and, and, and try to root out some of the corruption in their government and then in their judicial system. That's the only way long-term that you're going to solve these problems. Yeah, I mean, it applies to Central America. It applies more broadly. I mean, I think one thing that people that, you know, of, of the... Uh, I guess something that flew under the radar in, in, during the Trump administration was that he greatly reduced the number of refugee resettlements that we were accepting here in the United States. I think in under the Obama administration, something like 70 to 80,000 refugees a year, he brought it down to somewhere around 10,000 or, or fewer, right? This, I, and, I, and I mean, I think it, it really, um, it's one of these things where like we have so many of these problems in isolation, but they're also problems that are all kind of connected to each other. Like it speaks more broadly to our disconnectedness to the, you know, our shared humanity with people, not only our neighbors who we, you know, fail to be able to understand here in the United States, but also globally. I mean, I think, you know, we've talked before about potentially just having like a fairness episode. And you think about the circumstances that some of these people are faced with when they decide, like, I am going to like risk everything, my life, all of my possessions, anything that I've ever earned to try and go somewhere else. Because like what I see for me in terms of my future opportunities are, you know, either death or imprisonment or something like that. And, you know, it's like, if, if the shoes were on the other foot, of course you would do the same thing. Like yep. you would, you know, it's either, it's either you, you die trying to do something or you die where you are. And um, I think, it, you know, there's nothing more American than saying like in the face of adversity, we're going to give it our best shot. And so um, I think, I think, yeah, it's something that, that um, I, it's, it's another one of those things you just sort of just going to have to see how it plays out. I think, I mean, absolutely the double standard in the, in the media, I think, I think is, is, is there and, and it's, it would be unfair not to point it out. Um, but at the same time, I think we finally have an administration that is at least putting some of the right rhetoric together and we'll sort of see, well, we'll see, I mean, we'll see if there's any type of legislation that could actually come out of it. We, we may have a shot, but I think what you are seeing, what you're right to note is that doing this by executive action is probably not going to lead to the results that we want to see. Right. And it didn't, that didn't, that style of governance didn't work under Trump. It's not going to work under Biden. I, we've said this a bunch of times, but what's frustrating to me, and I, again, it goes back to what you were saying a little bit earlier about President Biden has a really ambitious agenda. Like we not only he's dealing with the coronavirus, but he also has 
infrastructure coming down and he has climate change and I know he wants to address healthcare and economic concerns uh, and the racial justice concerns haven't gone anywhere. So it just, immigration, it, there doesn't seem to be any urgency and not I'm not putting, putting this on the Biden administration. I, I put it with him, with Congress. It's a big, it's a heavy lift and you can't do heavy lifts simul like this many simultaneous heavy lifts right there's only so much you can do and that unfortunately that's just like the reality when you know as an administration as a country we're facing so many large-scale issues but immigration is not like i wouldn't put it in the top five of of like kind of big bills that i would expect to come out of this congress this administration uh which continues to be really unfortunate there are as you've noted well like these are you know, millions of real people with real stories who are true refugees seeking asylum. And yeah, we shouldn't forget that the humanity of, of all of those people. And uh, you, know, you, hope, <laughs> you hope that there would be some urgency around trying to, to reform our immigration system and, and give the asylum courts the, the judges they need to work through these more quickly, um, to give the to Mexico and the Northern Triangle countries the resources they need to, to try to improve their systems of government. Uh, there's a great book on this. It's called Enrique's Journey by an author named Sonia Nazario, if anybody's interested. And it's a true story. This uh, journalist, she rode the trains with this, she went down to uh, the Mexican Southern border and cooked on with this kid. He was a 17 year old kid named Enrique and she did the journey with him and chronicled the whole thing and then chronicled uh, his life in the United States, which uh, has been hard, uh, but, it's, it's, but it's worth the read if, if anybody's interested in, in terms of really humanizing uh, the people that are making this trek. Yeah, that's a, that's definitely a great suggestion. I, I, I haven't read that, but I have, um, I think I listened to the author came on NPR and, and talked a little bit about it. Um, the, I guess if I'll say one other thing about it, I think there has been kind of um, an argument on the right that like, you know, America is full. It can't already, it already cannot take um, care of like many of its own people. And so how are we going to accommodate or, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to leave aside like a lot of the like oh, immigrants or leeches on the system because I, I think that that narrative has factually not it's just it's not it's not a true one. So I'm not really going to address that. But I think it is fair to say um, that this is a question that people have that, you know, when we have when we have poverty in the United States, we have people without health care. Um, how do we think about incorporating new people um, into the United States who you know, often will need more resources because they have to adjust to uh, the new location, new climate, new society structure, like new, all sorts of things, right? So there, there is definitely that concern. I think from my side of the, I don't know, not my side of the coin, but like from where I sit, it's one of those things where like um, America ge geographically is actually just like a massive, massive country um, that that climb, you know, it's yes, like Russia and Canada also very big, but also they're like frozen for 75% of their 
territory, right? Like the United States is actually a massive territory in a very hospitable climate for most of it. Um, and 300 million people, 320 million people, it's a lot of people that we have, but from like a population density standpoint, like not even close. And it's one of those things that more people doesn't just mean that like it's few, it's the same size pie for, for more mouths now. Like I think we've seen in, in many different places that you're trying to, that attracting more people of all kinds of different um, sort of socioeconomic statuses will help grow the economy. And I'm sort of a firm believer in that, that, that a lot of those things can be figured out, but I think it's a concern worth hearing. For sure. There's good faith concerns both ways that you can really like, you can really see both sides can make convincing arguments. But I will say from a purely like utilitarian point of view, our country is aging. We need more young people. Like the Hispanic people from like, from Guatemala, from Honduras, from Salvador, like we do need younger immigrants. We've we've historically relied on on immigrants to boost our population, and as you know, white people in particular in this country get older, and people are having fewer kids. Like our population is aging, and like the our tax structure and our pension structure, it we need young people to come in. So when under the Trump administration, in particular, when you limit the amount of of immigrants, you limit uh, limit the amount that can come legally, you know, illegally refugees. It doesn't seem to be. It appeases people that think that there's like it's a zero sum game type thing, right? More if someone comes in, I and gets more, I get less. Like you said, like the pie, there's more mouths eating from the same amount of food. Um, but economically and like logically, it actually doesn't make any sense. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. Look how I'm kicking now. I'm so fitting. All right. So this next segment, um, I think we we want to talk about what happened um, last week. Uh, and over the last few days in Atlanta and in Colorado. Um, talking about this sort of stuff is actually, I think, for me, one of the more challenging, um, I'm not sure if it's aspects, but it's like the, the way that, that I think about the American political system, this situation is one that probably frustrates me more um, oddly enough, because in, in some ways it may not be as at grand of a scale or may not impact as many people, but it's one of those things that really just gets me every time. So quickly, uh, you know, if you've been living under a rock or something in Atlanta, um, a shooter essentially shot eight, eight people, um, specifically targeting Asian women, um, Asian owned like massage parlors, um, just as we're sort of processing what's going on there. Um, another shooter in Boulder, Colorado opens fire inside a grocery store and kills 10 people there. Um, it, it's one of those things that's obviously always shocking and yet 
in the United States, it's now become popular to comment on how unsurprising it is and how sort of typical it is. So I have a few, um, I mean, I think there are a lot of things to talk about here. So I, I want to start in one in one area that I guess it's, you know, really gotten under my skin. So um, Ted Cruz, when sort of gun control was again brought up in the United States Senate, said that every time there is a shooting, we play this ridiculous theater where this committee gets together and proposes a bunch of laws that would do nothing to stop these murders. So that's what Ted Cruz said. In, two, in 2019, a study in the American Journal of Medicine says that the gun homicide rate in the U.S. is over 25 times higher than in any other high-income country. Yeah, I'll, I'll, stop, I'll stop there and collect myself. Take it away. You're right. Uh, it, this stuff is hard to talk about. Uh, I remember distinctly when Columbine, the Columbine um, shootings massacre happened back in 1999, we were 10, 11 years old, uh, and how truly shocking it was and how much it, it resonated throughout the country. Uh, I remember like in my own home talking about stuff like that and, and the, the new fear as it seemed, it was, you know, the way September 11th kind of brought terrorism home, Columbine brought mass shootings, school shootings uh, in, into our homes. And then over the last 20 years, it seems that it, it just happens more and more. And while each of these incidents is a, a tragedy uh, for the families of everyone involved, for the communities involved, for you know the country as a whole, it's it's hard not to become numb to it to a certain extent uh, because it happens so often. Um, the gun control control stuff is is touchy. It, it always is. Um, normally, you get some sort of of momentum for gun control issues for a few days, maybe a few weeks after some of these incidents before you start to get stonewalled um, kind of in the back rooms uh, of Washington or wherever state it, you know, Florida or Georgia or wherever. Uh, the difference is now you have Ted Cruz leading the conservatives, you know, the day after stuff like this happens to, to pretty much say what was going to happen anyway, which is that nothing is going to change. Yeah, and I mean, I'm certainly resigned to the fact that I don't have much, you know, af if, if after Newtown, uh, when 20 some odd, the five to seven year olds get shot, um, get murdered, sorry, uh, that we can't do anything. It's, you know, what you, you don't think you could have a, a situation more shocking than that, that would cause some action. Um, and then to, to see nothing, I guess, you know, when, when you like, you know, we talk about a situation like the, the uh, what happened with the, the COVID relief bill and there was no, um, no compromise. I, th I think for most people who 
Well, so actually, I mean, the gun control issue is slightly complicated, right? Because it doesn't necessarily strictly draw across party lines. I think in the House vote recently um, to sort of advance a universal background check measure, you actually had eight House Republicans um, join a majority of Democrats, but not all Democrats in voting mm-hmm. to advance that bill to the yeah. Senate. Um, there are Democrats that that represent states that have sort of a, a more or less a rural majority um, who are, uh, you know, adamantly against um any, any, any gun control measures. Um, but, and, and this is where it just feels like there are, um, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things where I, I, I personally don't understand the Republican position. I wanted to start with those two, uh, those two, sort of, you know, what Ted Cruz said, and that fact that really this only happens here. And you have a sitting senator in the United States saying, well, you know, what are you going to do? Nothing we could do would would prevent this thoughts and prayers. And he actually said something like, when when somebody said that, you know, senators should be in the business of of making laws, and we can leave the thoughts and prayers to the preachers and the priests, um, that he was like, actually, I, I really strongly believe in the power of prayer. Um, which I, I mean is it's 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 like it's laughable in a situation like this that we can sit here and, and have this continue to happen over and over and over again, where it happened once or twice in so many of these other countries and they effectively have dealt with it and we're just refusing to. Yeah, that's a really good point is that sometimes as Americans, we like to think of ourselves as like so exceptional in like in either the good or the bad. And when you say that the United States uh, is, has far more mass shootings, far more shootings than any other developed nation in the world, that's today true today because there were mass shootings in Australia, in New Zealand, in the UK, in Canada, and their governments chose to act. And on varying levels in the varying countries, like the the mass shootings have decreased and you could certainly argue the countries have become safer. Uh, the United States, that impetus, the, the, in this case, the United States is a little exceptional in the sense that that impetus to act exists on with 50% of the country, maybe, maybe more, uh, but the level of opposition to gun control wasn't nearly the same in the UK, in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, or wherever else you want to name in these highly developed, um, relatively similar countries. And to be fair, that goes to you know how these countries were founded, uh, and like gun control, guns, and maybe violence in general goes to the root of you know our the United States. Yeah, but that I. I, I have a hard time buying that. I mean, the United States is 400 years old. Like all of Europe has a much longer and more violent or bloodier history than we do. Maybe not. Well, actually, yes, of course. Right. In the recent past, World War One and World War Two. I think a lot of these I I think the the at the end of the day, the single um, like biggest correlation for us between our 
the, the our outsized number of mass shootings and shootings in general, right? Obviously, mass shootings make up less than 1% of all gun homicides in the United States in a given year. You know, that's a, a favorite statistic as if like, oh, you know, so what? It's, it's a small percentage of a, another massive number that we could potentially also think of some ways of dealing with. Um, but it's our unfettered access to guns that has the strongest relationship with our outsized number of gun deaths among industrialized countries. Obviously, you can point to places like El Salvador and Honduras where potentially there are more homicides in the year, but it's like, it's an, it's another one of those things. Is that where you want to be? Uh, com- is that the measuring stick you want as the United States of America? And I, and I, I think, I mean, I think there are a couple of things, right? You brought up like, is it a 50, 50 split? Um, I don't know that it, I don't know that it is. It's very, it's very confusing to try and understand who is completely against any types of um, measures. But there is, you know, we know about sort of the NRA influence. We know, um, we know about the political ramifications of voting for anything that could be perceived as a restriction on gun ownership. And yet, when when it feels like you talk to individuals, even gun owners, there is some type of desire to like, hey, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily need to be leading the world in this category all the time. Right, because the overwhelming majority of gun owners are law abiding citizens. Um, And so many, like you say, many gun owners are quite responsible and don't need like the the bad name thrown over all gun owners because you have unfortunately a few lunatics or unresponsible criminals who use guns irresponsibly all right it is interesting that you say it's hard to know how we feel because if you ask voters strictly do you support background checks like if you limit it to something very very narrow i think it has something like 80 percent support something incredibly high but then if you just if you ask voters a, a more broader question to say, do you support more restrictions on guns? Then it is like a 50-50 split. And a lot of people, like when you just ask people, do you want restrictions? About half the country says, no, I don't. You ask people, hey, do you want like background checks? Most people are like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. So I think it's so complicated. <laughs> and obviously there's a reason, many reasons why this hasn't been addressed in the last 20 years. Because even people... Like when you when you start to throw out like restrictions on guns, a lot of people don't want that. Yeah, certainly um, there is a, like a branding or a messaging, and you know we've talked about uh, the fear of the slippery slope before as well. And uh, it's yeah, it's one of those things where like I guess I have to acknowledge that that is um, potentially out there um the the right like the it seems like there should be ways to increase um some of these single issue passages but even 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 background checks like all right so in these two cases we had one owner one in colorado the guy purchased the gun six days before he did this um i i 
like in just reading about this boulder was actually trying to ban assault rifles in their city because the state won't do anything about it and basically like within days before this shooting boulder's law was stricken down because (laughs) colorado has some law that basically says only the state can make rules about guns cities can't make rules about guns within our state to protect gun owners uh from being able to travel within cities within cities within the state and not like have to know what the rules are um which like i mean to (laughs) to me that's absurd but okay okay i i guess um he bought the gun six days before in atlanta the shooter bought the gun that day and there had been some um you know proposals that said like all right, you can purchase a gun today, but you can't get it for like a month because we got to clear background checks or something. And seemingly common sense things like that, that it feels like people should be able to say, all right, like that's reasonable. Um, I don't, I just, I don't get why we can't do that. Um, I just don't get it. All right. So <laughs> like, uh, yeah, help me out. Help me understand like what's sure. going on. So you, you mentioned earlier, and I think you alluded to it, that there are two bills that recently passed the House. And as you mentioned, a few Republicans voted for it. Democrats, some Democrats voted against it. Uh, it they're known as H.R. 8 and H.R. 1446. H.R. 8 would uh, mandate universal background checks and H.R. 1446 would close something called the Charleston loophole, um, which was a loophole discovered after yet another mass shooting at, at the church, in the, the black church um, in, in Charleston by the white man, I don't want to say his name, uh, a, few, a few years back. And the universal background checks are, I think, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, the Charleston loophole, it says that if the FBI hasn't been able to get back on the background check within three days, then you get your gun. So like the FBI might have a backlog, they might not have gotten to check this individual out, which is what happened in Charleston. He went and picked up his gun three days later and, and committed the atrocity. So um, those are what you might term like common sense gun control, gun regulation that people can get on board with. Uh, like you say, those don't seem to have any shot of passing in, in the Senate. Uh, back in 2013, which is, I believe, the last time the Senate really tried to push for gun regulation, I think. Uh, it, was, it was Manchin and Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, I believe, uh, tried to put forth uh, like a bipartisan bill. And what happened was I think four Republicans, including like McCain and Murkowski voted for it. And, and uh, but a couple of Democrats voted against it. Uh, so yeah, like you say, he lost 56 to 44. I just read about it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, it was because uh, it that, has to overcome a filibuster. So it needs 60 votes to pass. Right. That's an issue for another day, perhaps. Um, but I, I guess like what I would say is this, is that on the one hand, yes, I can see these are quote unquote common sense gun regulation so that you don't have a situation in Atlanta where a guy who's having a quote unquote bad day, which I want to talk about in a little bit, uh, can go pick up a gun and then with an hour go and murder eight people. Uh, you don't you don't want a guy with a history of, of mental issues who has alarmed classmates going back to high school, being able to you know pick up an 
an assault rifle and then within six days go go murder 10 people uh and you know quite honestly like personally i'm not a gun guy i didn't grow up in, in a gun family boston is not really a, a gun city like i don't i i'm not steeped in that so those those make sense to me but i'll make the opposite argument too is that i hesitate to roll back any freedoms from from individuals uh, and we know that the right to bear arms is the second amendment um, in, in our bill of rights is something that the foundation the founders thought really a foundational uh, aspect of liberty and while we kind of chuckle and say you know republicans always use the slippery slope argument you know that once certain gun control legislation is passed people aren't going to be happy like you can't tell me that like then the next step will be all right what else can we do what what is the next step that we can go to to regulate guns more and certainly if you look at you know how dictatorships largely start throughout history one of the first things they do is take away guns from the citizenry uh, and yeah it might not seem like putting universal background checks in is the step to a dictatorship where no one is allowed to have any guns. That seems insane. And maybe it is. Uh, but once you start putting you know, regulations on people's rights, that, that's a precedent that is difficult to stop. Th those rights aren't going to be given back. The government is not going, is not you know, in, the, in the business of giving back rights to people. All right. So I'm so glad that you brought that up because you weren't giving me much to get fired up about. Now I'm fired up. So I mean, there, there's so many problems with, with that mindset. One background checks don't actually take your guns away unless, you know, we more or less as an overall society, not the government, you know, decide that you're not fit to carry a gun. That's one. Two, the, the second amendment, what, what is the preamble to the second amendment? Doesn't it say like the, uh, actually, you can probably tell me verbatim what the segment and I, 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 in order to, to keep a, re a well-regulated militia. Yeah, exactly. So it's one of those things that like, it actually has a qualifier at the front of it that basically says that like a free, you know, a well-regulated militia is like necessary for a free and open society. It obviously isn't like a is false here. Right. So the, the following premise that we all absolutely have to have guns does not follow from the original um, from, from no, no one's saying that everyone has to have guns. That's not the argument being put forth. The, whatever the right to bear arms being necessary for like for a democracy is is also just patently false. Like you you're not fighting the government with whatever guns that you have in your house. You're just not. It's just not going to work. So. I like, I don't, I mean, while I under, and, and I'm not even per like really that intently against um, individuals owning guns, but I, I think on the freedoms side of things, like what about people's freedoms to just be in spaces without worrying about getting shot is, shouldn't that count for something? I mean, in Colorado alone, you have Columbine high school, mm -hmm them uh another high school uh 
experienced a shooting. There was a shooting at the Planned Parenthood, the Aurora movie theater, and now at a grocery store. So what about all of these people's rights and, you know, freedom to like walk around in their city and not worry about somebody going to shoot them? And yes, obviously gun control measures are not going to eliminate all aspects of crime, but especially with these like background checks and potentially um, barring certain types of um, high capacity magazines, these assault rifles, you know, you're just making it more difficult for these things to happen. Um, and that doesn't necessarily take away the freedoms of individuals who really want these things to go through the proper channels and wait for them. Um, and, you know, whatever, pass the background checks and all of those things if they want to keep them in their houses. But what, like, what about everybody else's freedoms? Yeah, I, I think that balance is something that we as a country has tried to do the best we can with for 300 years, you know, classic Benjamin Franklin, like those who can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Uh, and I think largely this belief is that the right to bear arms and, and defend yourself and your family is fundamental to you know, an, an individual in a free society. And that government abridging those rights uh, should should not be allowed. And, and yeah, I, right. That's it's a freedom of of balance here. Uh, but that's certainly the argument. I yeah, it is the argument, but it, I it doesn't seem to hold water in the twenty first century. Um, we don't walk around with guns needing to defend ourselves on a daily basis. Okay, see, that's a privileged thing to say. You don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. There are people in, in this country that do have to do that. Where? You don't think that there are people in living in, in places in our country that feel like they need to carry a gun to defend themselves every day? Potentially. I don't know anybody who needs to carry an AR-15 for self-defense. Yeah, I mean, th that's all right. But again, we've already established that there are certain communities that do feel like they need to defend themselves. Oftentimes, these are minority communities. My, right. But these, 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 this argument, it constantly conflates like the issue that somehow a restriction on gun ownership means that people who are using guns responsibly cannot have guns, right? The, these are always going to be two separate things that like the argument is always like, well, you know, if you, if you do this, then, then what's next, you're going to do that. It's not the, 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 those things don't necessarily follow one another. It's just that this is the thing that we're talking. I mean, it's this impossible to get past the most seemingly basic of restrictions. For some reason, there's this argument that as long as we like stop the, the thing at the very top of the, you know, whatever the mountain that, that all of a sudden that that's like the floodgate that we need to keep close. Like it doesn't, I mean, that is just illogical. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with you that saying that just because X happens necessarily means that Y is going to happen. I, I do think it's more likely, but that's fair. I don't know. The way I view it is that, you know, gun problems in this country are a public health crisis, <laughs> to use that word again, and, and need to be treated as such. You alluded to this earlier, but uh, while it seems like guns weren't, gun deaths weren't getting as much 
maybe media coverage in the last year. So it seems like, oh, now that we've had these two mass shootings in the last week, it's been kind of this macabre humor of like, oh, we're, we're back to normal. Uh, but last year, 2020 was as was as dangerous, if more dangerous in terms of gun violence than any year in the previous couple of decades. There were 20,000 Americans that were killed uh, due to gun violence, An additional 24,000 died uh, by suicide by means of a gun. And these are all these kind of smaller groupings within like the larger gun violence conversation and statistics. And this is where, you know, I do get frustrated. I understand when tragedies like this happen that people feel like now is our moment to kind of seize the energy and unfortunately take advantage of these situations to try to make change. But if you're really concerned about gun violence, you should have been concerned about gun violence every day when murders in Chicago were up 50% last year, murders in New York were up 30% last year. Like that's something that we, this should be talked about too. Like, as you mentioned earlier, these mass shootings as tragic as they are, are a drop in the bucket of like our overall gun violence epidemic that we have in this country. And there are a bunch of ways that I think a bunch of different kind of avenues that we need to explore. One, we need better data. We need to work with gun owners more, like you kind of said earlier, like with these responsible gun owners, what solutions can, can we come up with as gun owners? Um, we need to obviously improve like mental health care. Uh, we, we need to talk about like uh, storage safety and, and more like education uh, around guns, uh, like all these sorts of things. I do think that it needs to be treated as like a national health issue and not necessarily like let's restrict gun ownership. Um, that might be a part of a larger solution, but when you come out saying like we need to, you know, legislate away people's rights to own a gun, that's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, again, that's I don't think anybody is saying that, but that's what Republicans want to hear. Um, it it's always laughable to to hear something somebody say like you know it's we can't do anything about the guns. Let's solve mental illness like that is a, a, a much more track, you know, solvable issue that, um, that we could deal with and legislate somehow, especially coming from the party that's, you know, by and large against, uh, against expanding access to healthcare. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that like, um, it, 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 it makes a lot of those arguments, I think for, um, for Democrats where they feel like they cannot rationalize. Um, and, 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 it, and I'm not entirely sure. Um, uh, I'm not sure that I'm going to say this right, but like that, you know, for the same party that's pro-life to be so anti any type of, um, restriction on gun ownership that could actually save people's lives. Um, and, and yes, you know, you hear a lot about, all right, well, mass shootings are actually not that big of a deal in the grand scheme. What about Chicago? What about New York? Like, what about those places? A lot of, a lot of, you know, expanding, um, restrictions on gun ownership would likely help those problems as well. And I think, you know, you hear the argument that, oh, criminals don't care about background checks the vast majority of guns in this country are bought and sold by individuals um, that just don't have to subscribe to any of those background checks. It's not 
we don't have like we have over 360 million guns in this country they did not all just appear here from mexico with like you know the small portion of legal gun owners being the the outlier here most of them are coming are being manufactured in the united states and being sold in the united states and they are making their ways uh yes to you know your everyday criminal who's potentially not engaging in in like the mass shooting type of activities but also obviously you know the stories that hit the news are these larger scale things i like i think um I just think that it, it, these, the, the, the facts around gun violence have constantly been perverted to sort of tell a different story than what's actually there, which is that we have a unique problem in this country that is only unique because of the amount of guns and the easy access to guns that we have in this country. Now we can talk about, different solutions like i would love for a republican proposed solution that says all right like you know we're we want to potentially strengthen certain gun ownership rules um you know make it you know potentially more difficult for you to pass more restrictive measures in the future but we'll give you background checks we'll give you delays on whatever and i like i don't even know necessarily personally what exactly is needed but I assume because we're one of the few countries that really has this problem at our kind of developmental stage that like the answers are out there. We're just not looking. We're just deciding to ignore them. I don't know. I know there's nothing left to say, but this is why I was, I was getting hot before I even started. That's part of the problem, I guess. All right. So, um, you know, when, when, Obviously, we probably should have recorded last week following Atlanta. The debate was in a much different place, right? It was centered around um, this potential for for a, a, a sort of a massive hate crime against the Asian community in Atlanta um, that sort of followed a year in which um, many Asian people most uh, mostly East Asian people uh, were reporting, East Asian Americans were reporting sort of an increase in, um, in hate crimes uh, towards their communities um, that were, you know, it was kind of gaining some traction. I had sort of mentioned this to you a couple months ago that I, you know, I, I think we could, we could talk about something like this, but there wasn't really like a huge news story on it at the time. Um, but then, then Colorado happened sort of, you know, it, it kind of went in a different direction for me, but, um, I know there's a lot to talk about with Atlanta as well, perhaps for different reasons and for some of the same. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it was interesting to see, I think I focused too much on the media, but that, you know, when the media first, the headlines came out, there was a lot of backlash that it, it, the headlines, the focus wasn't that this was another young white male who, who was engaging in, uh, you know, an act of domestic terrorism, uh, a massacre, what have you. There wasn't enough focus that this was uh, an anti-Asian hate crime. And then once those narratives started to take hold a little bit, I felt like there was pushback on the other side saying, well, we don't actually know yet if this was a hate crime and labeling it as anti-Asian is 
is now stoking more division within our country. Uh, and so that that battle kind of over what headlines we has been really interesting to me. I guess my take is we we don't know at, at, at this point. What we do know is that you know seventy five percent of the people that were murdered were Asian. Uh, 75% at least were women. Uh, and it would be a mistake to ignore those things. Uh, and I, I don't take the shooter at his word that it wasn't uh, a hate crime, but we need to find evidence to, to show that it was. I think this is one of those times, maybe I'll sound like kind of like a woke millennial or something like that, where I want to talk about like intersectionality. And that to me, the focus isn't necessarily that many of the victims were Asian or that many of them were women or that many of them were engaged in a certain type of work. It's, it's all of those things and how all of those things are, are really tied together. Uh, but I, I do think it's, it's worth talking about. And to your credit, you did bring this up to me you know, weeks and months ago saying you know, we should talk about this, this rise in uh, you know, anti-Asian dis discrimination that has seemed to crop up over the last year. And, and we didn't until, you know, unfortunately now. Um, and I think the media at large didn't cover this probably as, as much as it should have, which probably sparked a lot of the backlash on the, the reticence of some of the media in the last week to, to call it a, a hate crime. Uh, but I, in the last year, the, the organization Stop AAPI, which is Asian American Pacific Islander, uh, Stop AAPI Hate has received something like 3,800 uh, reports of hate crimes. And we know that hate crimes, like most crimes in general, are vastly underreported. Uh, and this is just, unfortunately, another rise in anti-Asian discrimination that we've seen in this country throughout our history, certainly over the last 150 years. Yeah, um, I, I think personally, the jury's less out for me. I think whether or not, uh, I, I don't necessarily, you know, think I need to see like a swastika on this guy's, you know, bicep or something to understand that whether implicitly or explicitly, like he was targeting um, Asian massage parlors uh, for the shooting. Two of the victims happened to be there, um, but you know where he was going was very intentionally um, to kill a, a certain type of a certain group of people, um, let's say. And so I, I don't know that there is any other sort of you know, if, I, if I'm not going to use a racist to describe this guy, whether or not he understands his racism, I don't know that I, I really have much use for that word. I personally try and reserve that word for specific situations. Um, and this one for me fits that bill. Um, but there is, I, I think, I think certainly, you know, what you were talking about in terms of the, the intersectionality of this particular event um, is probably something that's just been overlooked for other events, right? All of these things are always, there's always this confluence of, uh, of factors that sort of fit into to how different people are, you know, make sense of, of their world. And 
I think, um, <clears throat> I think, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, what we're seeing today, uh, against the East Asian community, we've seen, um, you know, going back to Japanese internment, you have Chinese exclusion, you have what happened to Middle Eastern and Arab looking people following 9-11. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible joke, but I remember a comedian um, in like the early 2000s essentially saying like after 9-11, members of the black community were sort of breathing a sigh of relief because, you know, for a little bit of time, they weren't public enemy number one. And unfortunately, this is how um, the cycle goes in this country. And um, while these are all true things, um, I think in reflecting on this, not this particular issue, but sort of kind of this past year and past summer, um, I did start to think a little bit about what gives me hope about the whole situation. Um, and it's something like a, uh, uh, my boss, my, one of my first bosses told me when I was an intern is that he was, he was talking about, you know, everybody has their kind of their comfort zone where they feel, um, where they feel kind of safe. They're doing the things that they know how to do and they do those things well. And as long as you don't stray out of that comfort zone, um, you know, nothing is ever, there's never too much tension, right? You're kind of, you can kind of coast there. Um, but the problem with the comfort zone is that you just never learn anything. Like if you're not in these moments of tension, you're not growing. Um, and that's, you know, can sound very hokey and, and corny in many ways, but I, I think it's really true when it, when we think about the situation specifically around race in America is that we're actually a place where you do have a pretty vibrant um, Asian American community. You do have obviously um, uh, a, a huge black community, a Hispanic community. You have, these communities are now um, starting to kind of uh, not starting, but you know, they're interracial communities. There's a lot. Um, and, and we talk about, obviously, the LGBTQ community is certainly part of that. I think a lot of people were drawing parallels to what happened um, to the, yeah, to the gay community following the AIDS epidemic. Um, similar people just like not understanding what was going on and wanting someone to blame um, for something like a virus and, and, and finding a scapegoat there, right? So there's, there are all of these things, but, but they are happening here because we do have a, a certain level of diversity that really very few other places in this world have. Um, and that's going to be difficult. And I think we need to understand that and probably embrace that a little bit more. Um, and, 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 you know, for lack of a better word, just like lean into it. And I think it is one of those things that um, when we talk about American exceptionalism, this is an area that I really see um, an opportunity for us to lead. But unfortunately, we just we are going to have to continue to go through these these difficult times. And I think, and I know I've just been rambling for a second, so I, I know you need to jump in here. So I'm, I'll, I'll I'll end with this. I think like a lot of what we did. Um, structurally, uh, you know, from the overt segregation to sort of how we did it more subversively in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, 
Um, that's going to take a lot of real hard work to undo. But as we look to undo that, we're going to have a lot more <clears throat> problems because I think a lot more problems in the near term, because I think when what, what a lot of the current uh, conversation around race is missing is that we don't talk about the fact that we don't know each other across these communities that well. There are few people who really roam in many, many different circles. And that is part by design because it's, just, it's comfortable to be around people that you know and that are very much like you and have similar backgrounds to you. And you don't get into these areas of like, oh, shoot, did I say the wrong thing? You know, am I causing that kind of tension? But I think for us to really break that cycle, we're going to have to integrate more as communities, significantly more um, in ways that are going to be uncomfortable for everybody, like, you know, progressives and non-progressive, like, however you think about these things, it's going to be a difficult challenge. And I think we need to accept that more a little bit. And I, yeah, I didn't, I don't know. I got, I'm on my soapbox. I just got started. So here we are. <laughs> damn, damn. Uh, all right. This, that was like a, a beginning of the podcast, Ricky, when you would, you would just talk forever and then I would have to try to react to it. All right. I'll do the best I can because that it's, you said a lot of really great stuff there and I enjoyed just sitting back and, and listening to you for a couple minutes there. Uh, so I'll say this, you know, I, I taught eighth grade uh, for the last four or five years and the eighth grade curriculum was really cool. The social studies curriculum, we, it was called how the United States interacts with the world. And we did a unit on how we do it, how the United States does it economically, how it does it militarily and how it does a unit center on immigration. And so we started off the year, this was maybe back in 2015, 2016 and President Trump, former President Trump before he was president, he's, you know, when he first announced his candidacy, I'm sure you've seen the video, he comes down the gold escalator and, and he announces and he says, you know, Mexico is not sending us their best people. They're sending us, you know, their drug dealers and their rapists, right? And then he, we have clips of him saying that, you know, we should make, put bans on letting Muslims into the country. And we kind of framed the class as like, how, how did we get here? It's, it's 2016. This is like a major presidential candidate. And then this, this is our president, right? Who, who's saying these things. And I don't want to get into like there are other reasons why you may have been able to vote for a fine, but our, our president was was saying these openly uh, discriminatory racist things. Uh, and we use that discussion to go back and say, look, you know, we know your seventh grade class covered slavery. We know, unfortunately, we know too well how black people were treated in this country. But let's also look at how you know, Chinese people were treated. You mentioned earlier, like the Chinese Exclusion Act 1882, um, which didn't allow Chinese people into this country until 1943, because we wanted them on our side in World War II. There, in 1875, there was what's known as the Page Act, which essentially discriminated against Chinese East Asian women uh, because the, the belief out there was that they were coming over here and just to like prostitute themselves. And that's why I want to get to the intersectionality earlier of this, you know, subversive belief in our country of whether or not those, the spas were engaged in sex work. It was this belief that there are Asians there, there are women there, there's a spa, you know, these people are engaging in sex work, which may or may not have been true, but that's just kind of like an undercurrent, an ugly art undercurrent in a large part of our society. And so we looked at 
how Chinese people uh, would experience. We talked about Japanese internment camps. Uh, we talked about uh, you know how the how the Irish were treated, how the Italians were treated, how how Jews were treated in this country, and we went through all of that. And in some ways, it makes you feel like a little bit better, right? Like if if you were a Muslim kid sitting in my class, if you were a Hispanic kid sitting in my class, you're kind of like, well, I'm not glad that my people are getting discriminated against, but look, it's it's literally happened to every minority group in our country's history. Uh, and so, generally speaking, it's supposed to be a positive, affirming thing of like, look look at it, Irish, look at the Italians, look at Jews, look at, not that you know, particularly Jews don't face anti-Semitism, that um, some of these groups don't still face discrimination, but largely how it's a process of like evolution and overcoming some of that discrimination to um, assimilate and find your place in, in the culture of this country. Uh, and so largely it, it's positive. Uh, a few years ago, this girl came up to me after class and she said, Mr. Kelly, I think it would be a lot easier if this country had just stayed white people. And I was like, <laughs> like it was like, and then she just like walked out the door. She's one of like my most memorable students in college now. Um, I was like, oh my goodness, this is not what I want people to get out of this class. Uh, but her point was that like so much of the country's history and so much of the country's present the conflicts of that history and of our present is because we are this melting pot, right? And for better, or for worse, there are going to be conflicts of people that don't look like you, that don't aren't the same gender as you, that aren't the same sexuality as you, that don't worship the same God as you. Uh, and it's a process of evolution, not only in human history, but of our country to, to try to make it work. Uh, and, to me, obviously, you you knowing me, I got refused to give in to that, and she and I got had like many debates over the course of the following weeks and months. Uh, well, I'm surprised you didn't tell her about Northern Ireland and uh, the Protestants and the Catholics. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, smaller examples everywhere, but it doesn't always you know there's, there's not harmony. But the United States, like you said, is this example of, and there are so many problems that come along with it, but uh, it's. I think like you said in a moment of hope, it's it's good work that we have to do. Um, and I hate that it, it took the murder of six Asian people to bring some of this to the forefront, but that you know Asians are far too often left out of like racial justice conversations and like what's been held up in the media, like this model minority myth used to separate them from, you know, from black people or from Hispanic people and uh, and that they don't get to get, get the, the same uh, attention and focus on issues that Asian Americans face. And the Asian American community is not like a monolith, right? It, it's as diverse as any possible community in the world. Uh, and they are not, they face different challenges and have different successes. And yeah, like I, if, if you want to be hopeful, and I certainly do, like it's great that this is starting to get more coverage and that hopefully going forward, we make a greater effort as society to include Asian Americans in the conversations around racial justice and, and advancing forward from that. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, hard. I, I agree. I agree with everything that you said there. I think if I'm going to take it a step further, because we do talk about the United States, like this, this great big melting pot, but I think if we, 
if we dig a little deeper, the reality is, is that we haven't actually done a whole lot of melting. Like we got all the ingredients, but no one is stirring the pot really. And it's honestly, it's when we see different, you know, communities kind of clash a, a little bit is, is when these sort of stories come to the fore, but it's really when we understand that, that this man in Georgia, um, really probably didn't have any understanding of, uh, of those communities outside of this caricatured image of, uh, you know, an Asian woman sex worker, right? Like there, there is a problem of understanding. And I think, and I think one of the things for me that is missing and it potentially, you know, it's, it's a lack of my own education here, but I hear a lot about, you know, amplifying voices from underrepresented communities, um, you know, trying to learn about them, trying to, obviously trying to include uh, these people, but, you know, I say these people, uh, trying to include more, uh, more people, you know, partly like me, but partly just different kinds of people, right? Um, but I, I'm not entirely sure people know exactly what it's going to take. Like we live in cities that are largely segregated. So if we think about how you are really going to learn about people from other cultures, like the people that you know the best are the people that you like live around that you interact with on a daily basis. Um, Of course, you may get some of that in your workplace. So having more diverse companies is certainly a start, but I think the diversity in our communities is something that we have been largely uh, hesitant to push. And I'm not even entirely sure like how we can go about doing that. But that is something that I feel like is is going to be necessary to actually get to like a true uh, level of a mutual understanding. But I think we also have to be cognizant of the fact that in, in a melting pot, you do lose a lot of the individual characteristics of communities. Um, and that is, I think, I think there is like, while I'm, while I'm excited and sort of hopeful, um, that we're finally in a position where we're starting to understand that this, these kind of separate, but equal situations will, will never be. And, um, and I think, unfortunately, like after, Plessy versus Ferguson or something that wasn't quite, it wasn't quite settled uh, or Brown versus board of education rather. Um, But I'm also not sure that, that people are, are quite prepared um, to do, to do that yet. Again, a lot of really good points. It's been, in my opinion, was kind of become kind of a joke in the last year where what I would say is like a lot of white privileged liberals have like been like, oh, we need to do the work, like, quote unquote, let's, let's do the work. And that means let me read how to be an anti-racist and white fragility and like, let me learn more, let me read more about the black community and and how white supremacy you know affects my life. And not not knocking those things. Those are those are good books. And like if you want to read them, go go right ahead. Whatever. Uh, but like the real work, like you can't learn about the black experience from reading about it. You don't learn about the Asian experience or the gay experience or the Jewish experience from reading about it. You know, you, like like you said, you have to engage with people who, who are different than you. And 
it's easier said than done. It's uh, I'm certainly no like shining example of that. You know, it, this is almost like a good little challenge to me to, to do more of that in my own life. Um, so it's not, I'm not trying to preach from some sort of like ivory tower here. I think everyone needs to do that collectively. And it probably starts with, you know, me. Uh, and I, I think not only engaging with people who are different in learning about those people and their experiences, but I do fear that as we continue to focus more and more on identity, if we don't focus on intersectionality, if we don't focus on commonality, that potentially could drive us more apart. And if you if you are just going to segregate yourself or other people into communities based on your skin color or uh, your religion or sexuality or whatever, that doesn't necessarily help build bridges and let us see that you know where where we are similar uh, in, in all of those areas. And so that kind of thing does concern me. That of course you should know your identity and be proud of all the different parts of you, but you know being Irish American or Indian American is not who I am, right? It's like a, it, who we are. It's like a, it's a part of who we are. And so I, I hope that, you know, as we engage with people increasingly of, of people who are different than us, that, you know, it's not, we, we don't see them as like two-dimensional people. And we don't present ourselves as two-dimensional people either. Oof, that was a good one. A lot, lot, of, lot of things there. Wide ranging. Um, uh, yeah, I, that was. I suppose that was a very real talk, and some of that is probably goes to that we didn't we didn't have a ton prepared. We just wanted to come and talk some of these things through. If you're listening out there, that's very much that like a very authentic hit, hit record. <laughs> Let's just talk for however long this went for. <laughs> We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head and Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share loud American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning bus A 
need an early morning blood There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win, some days you'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and change the lies head from folks of different minds. Because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made all arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for. The hope I used to find in a case of lives had Folks a different mind Because though we did not share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz